All right, so Job 11. Job 11. Now, just a little reminder, because we are kind of a little further along in the book, for some of you who haven't been here in a while. This dialogue that we're looking at for 32 chapters takes place in the garbage dump, someplace outside the city of Uz. Job's friends, Job, they've sat silent for seven days. Job broke that silence by talking about what? Anybody remember? Talking about he wished he was never born. And since then, they've gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Job's friends giving him their opinion as to why he's suffering. And then we have Job's response to their opinions. Now, we could have taken the easy way out. We could have just looked at the first two chapters and then looked at the last um, four chapters and gotten a real good idea of what the book of Job is all about. But if we'd done that, you would have missed the 34 chapters in between. And the reason they're important is because they actually set the stage for the conversation that Job's going to have with God. And listen, by the way, we're learning a lot of good life lessons out of this book, aren't we? I mean, it's amazing that there's so many things in the book of Job that are relevant for today. It's just amazing how we can learn so much from Job. So these 34 chapters are really important chapters. And the best way that you can hear this or even read it is to put yourself in the garbage dump. That's the beauty of poetry. The power behind poetry is not that... It relays an experience, but rather it draws you into it. It makes you part of the experience. So we're going to take our place in the garbage dump this morning as we read about Zophar's remarks to Job. So chapter 11. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. So Zophar says to Job, in the multitude of words that you've spoken, do you think that it is proving your innocence? In other words, the more you speak, the more innocent you become. The more words that you use, the more you're vindicated. Now, that's usually not the case, is it? If we're guilty, the more we speak, the deeper we dig the hole we're in, isn't it? Police officers love a talker. They just love a talker. The more you talk... The deeper you're digging that hole, you're going to mess you up sooner or later, and you're going to say something that's going to convict you. Zophar is saying the opposite to Job. He's saying the more you speak, the more you're trying to prove your innocence. Proverbs 10.19 tells us that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 10.19. Proverbs 17.28 says, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. And really what he's saying is it's better to remain silent and let everyone believe that you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Job is doing a lot of thinking out loud, we like to call it, right? 
And Zophar is saying, I've heard enough of your claims of your innocence. I've heard enough. I'm tired of this. In fact, he believes Job's guilty. He says, you're deserving. Now, here's a friend. Here's a friend for you. You're deserving of much greater much greater um, wrath from God than what you've gotten. You've deserved more than that. You didn't get enough, Job. You didn't get enough. What a friend that is, huh? So Zophar obviously has been born without the ability to be tactful. He didn't get that gene when he was born. And he's saying, I wish God would speak out against you, Job. Not to vindicate you, but to condemn you. Anybody got a friend like that in your life? Maybe you should reconsider your friendship. Look at verse 7. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's cult is born of a man. It's actually one of my favorite portions of Job. Donkey man. Actually, there's a lot of them running around today. They're just known by different slang terminology. Yeah, I, I see them driving too. I'm sure many have thought I was one. But Zophar doesn't mince words. And he says two things here to Job. He says, Job's ignorant. Job, Zophar says, what can you know, Job? And I believe he says that with a, just a little bit of touch of Jersey sarcasm as he says it. Now, Job never claimed to know God, did he? In fact, Job has cried out for God to reveal himself to him. And then Zophar says, Job, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. He calls him an empty-headed man. And that word used for idiot in the Hebrew means just that. It means a person's head is hollow or empty. Now, we common terminology today, the common translation with that would be an airhead. So Zophar is basically calling Job an airhead. And he says, for that kind of person, an ignorant idiot to become wise, it would be, it would be more a, it'd be possible for a donkey to give birth for a human than for that person to become wise. Did you pick up on that? He said. So in other words, he's saying once you're an idiot, you're always an idiot. It's impossible for you to change. And Zophar then tries to explain to Job the wisdom of God, and he he says the height of God's wisdom, which is higher than the heavens. He says the depth of God's wisdom, the deep things of God, the deeper than Sheol. Then he explains the width of God's wisdom. He said it's broader than the sea. And the length is longer than the earth. Can you search out the wisdom of God, he's telling him. I mean, you're an empty-headed guy, Job. Is it possible for you to search out the wisdom of God? But what he should have been more versed in, rather than the wisdom of God, is the love of God. The width, the depth, the breadth and the length of God's love. Because there certainly was no love in the words of Zophar for his friend Job, were there? Now for believers, where do we find the measure of God's love? We find it at the cross. And Paul tells us that. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians 3 verses 17 through 19. So the cross really is a description, it's a measuring stick, if you will, of God's love. It reaches to the heavens, reminding us of our eternal destiny. It reaches down to the earth, reminding men of God's precious gift of salvation. And it reaches as far as the east is from the west, from one outstretched hand to another, offering forgiveness to all the world. That is the measure of God's love, and the cross is the measuring stick. God's wisdom is beyond comprehension for us, isn't it? And so much more so is his love for us. If his wisdom is beyond comprehension, how much more so is his love for us beyond comprehension? Personally, I can't believe that God loves me. I can't believe the depth and the width and the length of his love for me. How about you? Job eleven thirteen. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, <clears throat> if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away, and when you would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear, because you would forget your misery. And remember it is waters that have passed away, and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning, and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would count your favor, but the eyes of the wicked would fail and they shall not escape, and their hope loss of life. So what he's saying is to Job is repent, Job, repent. Now, I think if I'm keeping score right, this is the third friend who's told Job to repent of his sin. He says, repent and all will be right with the world. Now, I don't know about that, but I know that when we repent, all is right with our soul. When we, we confess our sin, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but that's only the first step. The next step is to repent, to turn from that sin. And when you do that, doesn't it take a huge weight off your shoulders? Don't you feel that, that, that weight, that burden just be lifted right off of you? There's a freedom in confession. There's a freedom that comes from repentance. And that freedom is when the burden of our sin is lifted off us, it makes us feel lighter. It really does. So Zophar tells Job to stretch out his hands to heaven. Lift them up to the Lord. And that's a great position to begin any prayer, is with our hands outstretched. Because when your hands are lifted up high to the Lord, it's a, a symbol of surrender. We're putting our hands up. We're surrendering to the Lord. We're saying, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. I need you, Lord. We're surrendering to his wisdom, to his knowledge, to his strength, to his power. Yielding to him is the first step in confessing and confessing in repentance. Because without surrendering to his will, there could be no denial of self, which is necessary for confession. And without yielding to his sovereignty, there could be no humility, which is necessary for repentance. So you need both of those things. Repentance Confession is good for the soul. 
Peter said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, Acts 3.19. So we need to repent as soon as we realize we've sinned, and as many times, as often as we sin. And for some of us, that could keep us pretty busy, couldn't it? So Zophar suggests repenting, right? He says, repent, Job, so that nothing worse happens to you. And that everything in Job's life, everything will just go away. Everything will be made new. So to repent Zophar's way is to say that we find favor with God through repentance. Do we? Is that true? In other words, if we repent, our trial will cease. Things all around us will just begin to get better. Do you find that to be true? To repent the way of the Bible is to know that as believers, we, all, we have already found favor with God. So, we repent not for what God, not for what we can get from God, not so that our trial will cease, not so that things go right in our life. That's not why we repent. We repent because we love God. And we want to do anything we can to not hinder that relationship. We don't want to do anything that will hinder that relationship, so we repent because we love God, not for what God's given us, not for the trial to stop, not for things to get better in our life. We repent to God. We repent of our sins simply because we love God, and that's the relationship we have with him. Amen? Look at verse uh, chapter 12, rather. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have an understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless who is ridiculed. The lamp is despised in thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of the robbers prosper and those who provide God are secure, provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hands. So Job now responds to Zophar, and he reminds Zophar that Zophar and the other two aren't anywhere, aren't any different than he is. They're not any more intelligent than he is. Job is just as intelligent as they are. And I think Job uses a little touch of Jersey sarcasm as he tells him that. Job says, you guys think you know it all. You guys think you just have all the wisdom of the world, that when you die, wisdom is going to die with you. Can you? I, I can hear the Jersey sarcasm in that. Now, the modern translation of that would be, you guys think you're all that in a bag of chips. So, God gives, so Job rather gives them now a little taste of their own medicine. Job says, I know what you guys are saying. I know what you guys are teaching. I'm not an idiot. I'm not dumb. I, I understand what you're saying. Everyone knows what you're saying. Just as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And Job accuses them of mocking him because he's seeking an answer from God. They speak of wisdom, but they don't have any wisdom in dealing with what Job's going through. They don't have any wisdom in dealing with someone in such a state of depression. They don't understand, and why would they understand? They had not gone through what Job went through. And only someone that's gone through what Job has gone through could really understand what Job is going through. Now, they may not have gone through the same thing, and you may not have gone through the same thing as a friend in your life or a family member in your life, 
but we know how to have empathy, don't we? We know how to have compassion, don't we? We know how to put ourselves in the place of, of our friend or our family. We know how to mourn with people. Paul would write centuries later, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. These guys thought they were something. But in reality, at the end of the book, we're going to learn they were really nothing. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We're to come alongside of our brothers and sisters when they're going through stuff. We're to help them carry their burdens. The example we have here for these 32 chapters, 34 chapters rather, is what not to do in counseling with your friends and family. The example that we have, the example that we are to follow is the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who looked upon the multitudes with what? Compassion. Compassion. That's how we're to treat one another. That's how we're to come alongside a brother and sister. Not offering them the wisdom of the world, not offering them the wisdom of our lives, but simply listening and providing a shoulder. Having empathy and compassion for them, love for them. Not trying to fix it. Look at verse 7. But now ask the beast, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words, and the mouth taste its food? I went a little too far. We'll stop there. This is in God's hands, Job says. Now, Job still believes that the tragedy that he's experienced is because of the hand of God upon him. He has no clue, remember, of what transpired in heaven between God and Satan when God said, have you considered my servant Job? Job has no clue that that transpired. And it's easy to think or to understand why Job would believe this because at least two of the tragedies that happened in his life were caused by natural disasters, weren't they? Lightning caused a fire that burned up all the area, burned up the sheep, burned up the servants, right? And then the tornado that swept through the land caused the, the house that his son and his children were in, that caused the walls to collapse. So both of those tragedies were caused by what we would call a natural disaster. But are all... Are all the natural disasters we see in the world, are all of them a result of God's hand? There's a lot of people in the world that believe they are. That it's God's judgment upon mankind. Did you know that natural disasters occur in populated areas as well as unpopulated areas? Let's take a flood, for instance. If a flood occurred in, 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 a, des in a deserted island where there's no one around, that's what the word deserted means, um, that would not be considered a natural disaster. It would not be considered a natural disaster. What constitutes a natural disaster is it happens in a populated area because all natural disasters cause a loss in some way. Hurricanes, tornadoes, lightning, uh, all weather-related events have always been part of the earth since the fall, hasn't it? Before the fall, Weather on the earth was perfect, perfect. 
There was nothing threatening about the weather. It was ideal. What's drastically changed, well, the fall, one, that brought sin, death, and destruction into the world. But what's changed since the fall is that we've grown. The population of the earth has grown. Man is more spread out. So is it fair to blame God for natural disasters that occur in populated areas today? Should we blame him for those events that that devastate a city or town simply because it's more populated now by humans than ever before? Humans have placed themselves, we could say, in the path of these storms. The answer is no, because these disasters occur on populated areas and and in deserted areas, just the same. So if you don't want your home wiped out by a hurricane, here's a tip. Don't build it two blocks from the beach. Just a public service message. However, there's a couple points we learn about storms in the book of Job, don't we? Some, some things we didn't know before. First, the enemy's not above using storms, using the weather, to inflict pain and suffering on humans. And secondly, God will and has removed his hand of protection, his hedge of protection from individuals, and the Bible tells us also from nations. He removes his hand of protection and allows the enemy to unleash whatever he's going to unleash against us. So we don't know when a natural disaster occurs if it's really just a result of the fallen world we live in or if it's a result of the Lord taking his hand of protection off. We don't know. But we can't blame God for every natural disaster. Yet we do. It's not always judgment. Sometimes it's just a consequence of living in a bowl, for instance, in New Orleans. They live in a bowl. When the water rises around you, what happens to a bowl? It fills up. Not all natural disasters are called by God, caused by God. Not all natural disasters are judgments upon those people. So we have to stop thinking like that. Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. He has counsel. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there could be no release. If he, withhold, if he withholds the water, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. And de- the deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, plundered, and he makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away, plundered, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech, and he takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander a pathless in a pathless wilderness they grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man so job again responds to zophar's words by pointing out that god has given us the ability to discern the way different foods taste and if he's given us the ability to discern the way different foods taste then surely he's given us the ability to discern 
wisdom that comes out of the mouth of people. Whether it's their wisdom, whether it's the wisdom of the world, or whether it's wisdom from God. We have the same ability. We have the same discernment to discern whether or not someone's speaking to us from, from, from the Lord, from with being guided by the Holy Spirit, or if someone's speaking to us out of his own wisdom and understanding. Job's three friends claim to have such wisdom. Now, maybe they do. But their wisdom and understanding so far has been wisdom and understanding drawn from the way, from the things of the world, from their own personal experience. None of it so far has been from God. Although they claim to know God, although they claim to be speaking for God, not much of this wisdom is godly wisdom. More of this wisdom is based on their opinions than on the wisdom of God. And so what we need, what Job needed, was the wisdom that can only come from the Ancient of Days. The wisdom that can only come from God. We can seek the wisdom of the world, and many times we do go there first, don't we? But nothing, nothing takes the place of the wisdom of God. And the, where do we find the wisdom of God for us today? In his word, right? It's right there on your laps. Listen, God's word isn't ancient. It isn't ancient. Although this book was written thousands of years ago, it's as relevant today as the day it was written. God's word is an ancient. It's living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It grows with us. It teaches us at every single level. Doesn't God's word meet you where you're at? For those of you who have been reading God's word for years now, when you read the same chapter or the same verses, don't they speak to you differently today than they did when you first started studying the word of God? That's because you've grown. Not that the word's grown. The word's the same. You've grown, and the Word's meeting you where you're at, enabling you to, to, to read it and understand it on a different level than when you first began. That's what's amazing about God's Word. It's living. It's not a dead book. If you spend the time, if you take the time to study it, to let it become part of you, it's gonna, you're going to grow with it. It's relevant for our life. It's relevant for every situation of our life in our life. If you're struggling with something, if you're having an issue with something, and you don't have the answer, you can go to your friends, and hopefully you have better friends than Job had. But you're not going to get the answers that you're going to get right here in this book. The answer is here if you'll take the time to search it out. Amen? So Job makes also the point that God is sovereign over all things, over man, over creation, Oh, even over the elements. And he puts kings in authority and he removes the authority of kings. It's important to know it when we, when we go to the polls. That God is going to raise up whom he chooses to be in that position. He raises up nations. He destroys nations. In the book of Daniel, we read the decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. In Daniel 2, verse 21, we read, And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God has been since the foundation of the world, been moving behind the scenes. He's been raising up kings and taking down kings, raising up nations and destroying nations. And all of that has been done, all of that is being done with one outcome in mind, 
What is that? The return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign on this earth. Amen. Everything that happens today in our world is happening for that one reason. It is moving us closer and closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ. So when we look at the world around us and we see turmoil, that should not shock us. When Jesus steps foot on the Mount of Olives, is this world not on the brink of destruction? This world is on the brink of destroying itself. This world is complete chaos and turmoil, so it should be no shock to us that the world that we live in today is becoming more and more and more in chaos and in turmoil because it's going to be that way when Jesus gets back. And we're moving toward that time when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth. But the more we turn our, listen, listen, this earth right now, especially I'm just going to talk about the United States of America, there's still a remnant. There's still a remnant of Christians living in the United States. I say a remnant because I don't believe there's billions of Christians living in the United States, living in the world where there's a remnant of Christians. I do not believe that we live in a Christian nation as a whole any longer. This nation was founded on Christian principles. We were founded as a Christian nation to honor God, but I think we've moved far away from that foundation that we were once established on. However, there is still a remnant. We're sitting right here this morning, and there's remnants all over the United States of America, a remnant of Christians who still believe that God is, is sovereign and God is over the United States of America, and he's going to raise up whom he wants, and he's going to take down whom he wants. But the more we turn our back on God as a nation, the more he's going to remove his hand from us, and who knows what the enemy is going to unleash against this nation once that happens. Look at chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to reason with God. But you forger of lies, you are worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly, wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. So Job's listened to the opinions of his three friends, and now he gives them his opinion of them. He tells them, you're forgers of lies. That to forge in Hebrew means to smear or to plaster over. So his friends have engaged in a smear campaign against him, haven't they? They've tried to damage his good reputation. Remember, Job was very well respected in all the lands. He sat at the gate. He was a judge there. And, and so they've tried to smear his name by the accusations they brought against him. I'm sure no one in here has ever had that happen to them. Someone's tried to smear your good name. Someone said something about you, especially with the advent of social media. It's more rampant than ever, right? 
I mean, you used to be able to say something to somebody and you said it in school and maybe them and a couple of your friends knew. Today, you wake up and it's all over Facebook. Listen, God will give you the victory over that. You don't have to fight. You don't have to go after them. They're just forgers of lies. They're trying to make a smear campaign against you. And as you're going to, as we see at the end of this book, God deals with these three guys. Job says, you're worthless physicians. And what he's meant by that was your diagnosis of me is wrong. And, and, the, and the, reason you're, the reason your diagnosis is wrong the pres- is because you don't know me. You don't know what's happened. Therefore, the prescription that you've given me, how to make this right, that's wrong too. You guys are just worthless physicians. And then he says, you're deceitful defenders of God. Job says it would be better off had you remained silent. Better off to remain silent and let everybody believe you're a fool and open your mouth and remove all doubt. You don't know God any better than I do, he tells them. So how can you claim to speak for him? How can you claim to know what God thinks? How can you claim to know how God feels or what he does if you don't know God? You haven't represented God. You've misrepresented him. And Job asked them, what would you do if God turned his attention to you? If you were in the same position I was in, what would you do? Listen, what's gone on here is their pride's really gotten the best of them, hasn't it? They see themselves as righteous defenders of God, and we have plenty of them around today, don't we? The Bible tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Job's three friends are prideful. They're prideful in their assessment of Job's life. And by doing that, by being such prideful people, they're putting themselves in danger of sinning if they're not already sinning. How are we as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples, how are we to treat our brothers and sisters who have stumbled or are struggling? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So we are to bear one another's burdens. We don't sit in judgment of one another. We don't criticize one another. We don't talk about each other behind our backs. We help one another. Does talking about your brothers or sisters behind their back, does criticizing your brothers or sisters, does that help anything? Paul warns us not to be critical of our brothers and sisters, lest we fall into sin ourselves. Because many times the people that we're talking about, criticizing, making fun of, we're doing the exact same thing, or worse. Remove the plank from your eye before you take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. Job's friends weren't much help to Job. They're critical of him. They're mocking him. And later, God's going to get angry about their bad advice, and he's going, to, he's going to agree with Job that they haven't represented God but misrepresented him, and he's going to instruct them to bring animals to Job for Job to sacrifice these animals for them for the forgiveness of their sin and to pray for them, which is an, it's, it's a vindication for Job that their advice that they've given him through all these chapters has missed the mark. But at this point, Job tells them 
that their memories, their platitudes, and their moral superiority, it's like ashes. Their bad theology, their misguided advice, it's not solid. It's not gonna, it's just gonna scatter in the wind. And there's plenty of bad theology out there, isn't there, today? And so listen, all that bad theology that's out there today in the end, that'll just scatter in the wind. It won't stand. It's not because it's not solid. It's not built on any foundation. All that's going to remain when that's gone is the rock-solid word of God because Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never pass away. Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let them come on, then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. So you have to understand that Job is still looking to plead his case before God. He still wants to be vindicated before God. He's done nothing wrong. And he wants God to declare him innocent. And he's saying, if I come before God and he kills me, he's still my only hope. He's still my only hope, and he's, he's the one I'm going to put my trust in no matter what, whether he slays me or not. And if he doesn't kill me, then I'll be vindicated because that means I'm innocent. So Job believes that if he's guilty, God's going to kill him. And if he's innocent, God's going to let him go. And so he says, if, I, if he kills me, or if I live, my only hope. My only hope is in God. He's the only one I can trust in. What an awesome statement of faith. Live or die, my hope is in God. My trust is in him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had the exact same attitude toward God, didn't they? Listen to their reply to King Nebuchadnezzar, who threatened to throw them into the burning, fiery furnace. They said, if this is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Whether God saves us from the furnace or he doesn't save us from the furnace, we are going to serve him and him alone. We're not going to worship your foreign gods. We're not going to do as man says. We're not going to do as the world says. We're going to serve our God no matter what. You know, listen, the worst thing the enemy could ever hear, next to, Lord, I pray, don't ever underestimate that statement. That's a powerful statement. The enemy hates that because we're rolling out the heavy artillery when we pray. The, The thing the enemy fears the most from a Christian is a Christian that says, Lord, if you answer my prayer as I've prayed it, fine. If you don't answer the way I've pray- I want, then I'm okay with that as well. Your will be done, Lord, not mine. Live or die, I will trust you, Lord. Whether you answer my prayer the way I want it answered or you don't answer my prayer the way I want it answered, I will trust you no matter what. I want you to listen to this excerpt from uh, C.S. Lewis. Anybody ever read the Screwtape Letters or watch the play, the Screwtape Letters? 
it's an awesome play. It's an awesome book. If you've never seen it or heard it or read it, it, it's, I highly recommend it. Now, Screwtape is the name of a senior demon, and he's training his nephew, Wormwood. What great names. And so this conversation I'm going to read to you is between two demons. And so Screwtape says to his nephew, Wormwood, he, referring to God, wants them, referring to Christians, to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. Pretty interesting, right? us to learn to walk, God takes away his hand from us sometimes. When you're training your child how to ride his bike, and you take the training wheels off, and you guide them down the street, what do you do? You take your hand away and let them learn how to ride. That's the only way they're going to learn how to ride. And so God takes his hand away. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy, and again he's talking about God, our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asked why he has been forsaken, and listen, and still obeys. And still obeys. The enemy elatedly, excitedly rubs his hands together when we ask the question, where are you, God? Because he thinks he has us right where he wants us. But that elation, that excitement is soon met with dread when the Christian gets up, or his, gets up from his or her knees and says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. No matter what, Father, no matter whatever, Whatever happens, whether I live or die, whether you answer my prayer the way I want it answered or not, I will still serve you. Even when we feel abandoned, even when we're in the midst of the furnace, because he knows, the enemy knows that there's nothing he can do to stop a Christian who steadfastly seeks to do the will of God, even if our prayers aren't answered the way we want them answered. Even if we don't feel God in our lives. Because this isn't about, Christianity is not about a feeling, is it? It's about serving God no matter what, amen? Let's finish out chapter 13. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me. And, not, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgressions and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? Will you pursue dry stubble? Will you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth? You put my feet in stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So Job asked two things of God. He asked that he withdraws his hand of judgment against him. Because Job still believes this is God's heavy hand of judgment upon him. And he asked, do not... Do not let the dread of your presence make me afraid. 
So Job, in reality, is asking God, don't terrify me with your presence. And if God will agree to these terms, then Job will come before him and ask. Because Job's fearful to even come before God and ask him what he's done. So if, you've, if you'll agree to these terms, God, then I will come before you and I will ask you what I've done wrong. Where's the sin in my life? Show me that I'm guilty. Listen, minus the terms of the meeting, right? Asking God to search us, to reveal the sin in our lives, is that a bad thing for a Christian to do? It's a great way, besides raising our arms and surrender to the Lord, it's a great way to say, Lord, search me out. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and reveal in me any wickedness, any evil, any sin, and then lead me on the path of everlasting. We can always go boldly into his throne room of grace. That's what it's there for. Jesus died to give us access to that. To come boldly into his throne room of grace, to seek help in our time of need, to seek his mercy. We can always come before God. We can always ask God to reveal whatever's in us that's hindering our relationship with him. But Job's so frightened of God that he feels he can't come into his presence. He feels he can't ask him that question. So Instead, Job says, would you harm a human as fragile as a leaf that's blown to and fro or dry straw that's blown to and fro? Because he reminds God, he says, this is who you're dealing with, God, as as if God didn't know. I'm just a human. I'm just an old piece of of garment that's decaying, that that can be moth-eaten. And I I really think Job's trying to get him to feel sorry for him as he's reminding God that he's just a fragile human being who makes mistakes. Look at verse 1 through 12 of chapter 14. Man who is born of wisdom is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you not and do you open your eyes to such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since this day No one except Jesus Christ, by the way. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest. Till like a a hired man, he finishes his day. For there is hope for a tree that is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease, though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground. Yet, the scent of water, at the scent of water, it will, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, his breath is his last. And where is he? As the water disappears from the sea and the river becomes parched and dries up, so a man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. So Job uses some really beautiful poetic terminology to describe the frailty of man. Man is born. He lives a short time. That life is filled with trouble and dies. Isn't that poetic? Isn't that inspiring for all of you this morning? Like a flower, we blossom and then we just wither away. Like a shadow, now we're here, now you see it, now you don't. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for mankind. There's no hope for any of us. And that's the way the world believes today, isn't it? Many of the world believes there is no hope. Many of the world believes that you live 
Your life is filled with trouble and you die. Many people believe that today. So eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Live it up now. Because once you die, that's it. You just take a dirt nap. They plant you in the ground. They cover you up with some sod and it's over. It's over. That's where you stay. You don't leave. You don't rise from there. That's where you end up for all eternity. That is the hedonistic way of life. That is the way that mankind lives their life because that's what they believe. That you should enjoy life now while you can because there's nothing beyond the grave. Nothing. And that's even Job's thoughts right now. Job believes that man can't live beyond the grave. He feels that his death is the final word. There's nothing else. And in that regard, he says, even the stump of a tree is more blessed than I am. Because even the stump of a tree, if it, if it, even if it withers away, even if it rots, just a little bit of water will cause it to bud again. But not man. When man dies, he breathes his last, and that's it. He's lost forever. Man will go to his grave, Job believes, and there, from there he will not rise. Uh, oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath has passed, that you would point me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up for, in a bag and you cover my iniquity. We all have an expiration day on the bottom of our feet. Only God knows what that is. Only God knows when our last day will be. And so Job's saying one minute that man cannot raise from the dead, that he cannot live beyond the grave, and then he asks, can man live again? And he goes from feeling hopeless and dis with despair to hoping against hope. In other words, Job's hoping that he will rise again. He's hoping that the grave isn't the final word, but he's not too sure. He doubts that that's the case. See, Job's never seen anyone rise from the dead. Have we? Do we know of anyone that's risen from the dead? Jesus Christ. We know that there's life beyond the grave. We know that there's hope. So Job figures if he did live again, if he does live beyond the grave, that he'll just hide out there in the grave. I think some religions call that purgatory. And remain there alive until the anger of God passes. Maybe we could say enough prayers to get Job out of purgatory, right? And then once the anger of God, once his wrath is subsided against Job, then he can ask God what he wants to ask God. The Job can't escape God in this life, but he thinks he can hide from God in death. Is that the case? The psalmist says this, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. There's nowhere in this life or in death that we can go to escape God. Wherever we go, he is there. And Job tells God, I'll call on you then, and you'll come. And what a sad statement that is. Because Job's longing for a relationship with God. He really is, and he thinks that that relationship that he can have with God will occur after death. Because he doesn't have that relationship with him now in life. And as followers of Jesus Christ, it's just the opposite for us, isn't it? 
It's death that has given us a relationship with God. It's the death of his son, Jesus Christ, that's enabled us to have a relationship with God. We don't have to hide from the wrath of God. We don't have to hide from anything. Because Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. Jesus endured what we deserved. So we can walk away free. Free from sin, free from death, free from Satan. So we never have to hide. We never have to hide from God. We never have to hide from the enemy. We don't have to hide from our trials. We don't have to hide from anything on this earth because God is always with us. God is for us. Who can be what? Against us. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and and a sound mind. Because we're his sons and daughters, we can come boldly into his throne room of grace. We don't have to fear him. We don't have to fear God that we've sinned, that we've stumbled, that we've fallen, that we've messed up one more time. You don't have to fear God. You don't have to be ashamed to go before him. You don't have to to hide or cower in the corner. We can go boldly, the author of Hebrews tells us, into his throne room anytime we need his grace and mercy. He will never reject us. He'll never turn his back on us. He'll never ignore us. And he'll never say to us, hey, I don't have time for you today. He is always there for us. His door is always open. It is our fear. It is our shame. It is what we have perceived in our own mind that keeps us out of that throne room. Put all that behind you. Put it all away because none of that matters to God. You're his children. And we can go before him anytime. For any reason. And he's always there. Amen? Verse 18 of chapter 14. Actually, we'll go right to the end of the chapter. Oh, that was a welcome sound, huh? The end of the chapter. And the end of the message. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. He's talking about the grave. You know, when you go to, to the grave, no one knows you're there. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. So Job again uses some, some very poetic words to describe the death of and hopelessness of mankind. Either death comes slowly, like the water that wears away the rocks and causes the mountain to crumble over years and centuries, right? Or it comes suddenly like a flood that washes away the soil. Either way, slow or quick, death comes and leaves man hopeless, Job says. Again, he's, he's saying life is short, filled with trouble, and then you die. What a hopeless statement. What a hopeless view of life, isn't it? But listen, for somebody that's been grieved the way Job's been grieved, it's not hard to see how you would feel that hopelessness. It's easy to see how someone like Job could think God has forgotten him, that God has turned his back on him. You know, I read a message the other day from a woman who actually runs a prayer group for children on Facebook who suffer from cancer. Now, she herself has some very serious heart issues. She's probably in the end stages of her heart disease. Her heart's failing. There's water that's built up around there. It's called congestive heart failure. But it's already it's causing her already weakened heart to beat way too fast. It's causing her blood pressure to raise 
is causing shortness of breath. And, and the doctors have already told her there's little more we can do to reverse this, to stop this. She's already had a heart surgery to repair it, and it didn't work. And so her message was, I'm tired. I'm tired. And she keeps praying, but God's not answering her. Because what she's asking for, what she's praying for is complete healing. That God will just heal her heart. And she said, she remarked in that message, she said, is God, God must be deaf because he's not listening to me. And this is from a person who manages a, a prayer page, who encourages other people to pray. People who've heard the words from the doctor or their children, we can't do anything more for your child. She's frustrated. I understand that. Everyone in this room understands that kind of frustration. God's not answering her. And that's understandable. When we're in desperate need of an answer from God and God's not answering it, doesn't it cause frustration? Doesn't it cause us to think God must be deaf? He's not listening? Here's the problem. She's praying for healing. Now, I know God's going to answer that prayer. Anyone in this room that ever prays to God for healing, God, if you're a child of God, God's going to answer that prayer. He's going to answer that prayer. But here's what you all have to be, all of us have to be keenly aware of. God heals his children, some on this earth and some in the next life with him in eternity. Not every one of God's children is healed on this earth, but all of God's children are healed. Do we understand that? Listen, the frustration comes when we expect God to heal us in this life. That's where the frustration comes from. We want our prayers answered the way we want them answered. And God's will for us may not be the same way. His will for us may be that we're healed in heaven with him. Listen, I prayed. Thousands of people prayed for Dina to be healed, for Abby to be healed, for my son Nick to be healed. And I was angry for God for a very long time that he did not heal them until I came to the realization that he did heal them. Just not the way I wanted them healed. Not the way I prayed. He didn't answer my prayers the way I wanted them answered. He answered them according to his will, not my will. They were healed. They are healed. They're in heaven. They're healed. They're, they're free of pain. They're free of suffering. They're free of sickness. They're free of death. They've never been more alive than they are now. But we have to understand that it's God's will, not our will. That God's going to answer that prayer just in his timing and in his way, not always in our way, not always in our timing. So for Christians, there is hope. Things are never as hopeless as Job makes them out to be in these last couple chapters. Our hope is a living hope. Our hope is in Christ Jesus. Our hope is that because he lives, we live. Because even if he takes this, this woman home to be his servant, home to be with him, because he lives, she will live. She will never be more alive than when she's with him in heaven. She won't have these struggles with her heart any longer. Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope is the hope that we have. Now hope can even, the word hope can suggest doubt. I hope I don't have school tomorrow. I know every one of you guys have prayed that prayer. People have used the word hope even when asked the question about going to heaven. Do you think you're going to heaven? Well, I hope so. I hope so. 
But the way hope's used in the Bible is a lot different. There is no doubt. There's secure, a secure, confident assurance based on the foundation of the promises that God's made to us, on the promises that Jesus made to us. Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 6, verse 47, chapter 6, verse 47. So Jesus says emphatically, if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. Is there any doubt in there? The only if in there is the word if you believe. If you do, if you do believe, then you will have eternal life. There is no if, ands, or doubts, or buts in there at all. Jesus is very sure and very confident that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. And there's nothing that can separate us from that. Therefore, we should never have any doubt, never have any doubt that when we leave this earth, where we're going, when we leave this earth, that we will live forever. We can have the confident assurance that because he lives, we live. That's the living hope that Peter writes about. Our living hope is Christ Jesus. Amen. A hope that gives us a confident assurance that whether we live or die, whether he answers our prayer according to our will or according to his will, that we will trust God. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Stand, please. I want you to say that with me, together as a, as a body. Though he slay me, I will trust him. One more time. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Do you believe that? Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we have that confident assurance that when we leave here, we will be with you forever. When we leave here, Lord, we will be more alive than ever before. Free from all these pains, all these, all the things that go on in our life, the burdens, Lord, the depression, the suffering, the pain, all of it, Lord, will be free from it. But until that time, until that day, may we serve you, Lord, with a confident assurance of who we are in you and who you are in us. May, may you use our lives here on this earth, Lord, as an example and an inspiration to others. Whether we're young or old, Lord, we pray that you use us to reach others to bring others into the kingdom of heaven. While we are still on this earth, we have a mission to be about our Father's business. May we do just that, Lord. May we be about your, your business, spreading the gospel message, Lord, spreading that message of hope from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.